Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Rich McCoy. Rich is the design lead on Flying Blue, the loyalty rewards program for KLM and Air France. Currently, he's doing that working remotely from the confines of a cupboard under a flight of stairs in New Zealand. Aside from the cupboard part, that's a 10-hour time difference, and he's also recently had twin boys. I really don't know how he does it. Before joining KLM and Air France, Rich was a senior manager of design at Nationwide Building Society in the United Kingdom. He also spent a number of years at TradeMe, New Zealand's version of eBay, where he was a design lead responsible for the creative well-being of 13 other designers across three offices. During his 25-year career and as an exceptionally talented and versatile designer, Rich has built up extensive experience working for agencies, including AKQA, Saatchi and & Saatchi, and Digitas, as well as product-led companies. But to just tell you about Rich's commercial design experience would be doing him a disservice. He runs a coaching and mentoring practice for other creatives and is also a very talented and established fine artist working through photography, sculpture, paint, and digital mediums. Raised in the Kalahari Desert to the age of 11 and described by others as having a wild, untamed and barefoot approach to life, I think we're in for some interesting stories today. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. That's, that's very, very nice. You're most welcome. So tell me, the cupboard in a 10-hour time difference <laughs> with twin boys, what is that all about? It's about pain and punishment, it feels. Yeah, so I I landed on this, it's a, I'm working contract, this contract while still in the UK. It's teamed up with another with a with a copywriter who decided to move to Canada during the project. So she was in in France and she moved to Canada. And I was like, well, I'm not really enjoying being in England. Let's go back to New Zealand. We've got the twins. We need we need support. So I had an, a, well, what I presumed to be would be a much more awkward conversation than it was with with my client. And we just went, yeah, let's just do it. And me and I get up, but it's only fair that I wear the discomfort rather than you guys. Although. You know, they, they fit in meetings at around four o'clock. So I get up at, at 1.30, have a have a coffee and something very light to eat, and then hit the ground running at 2, 2 a.m., usually with a, a presentation of what we've been doing or a, a meeting with some such. It's hard. <laughs> it's real hard. Um, it sounds well, hard. It yeah. really does. Yeah, I'm only doing it till the end of the month, and then I've got a full-time job in New Zealand that I'll be doing. But I'm looking forward to working days again. And, and having proper night's sleep, and I say proper night's sleep, you never have nights proper night's sleep with babies, certainly not two of them, and we, we do the whole co-sleeping thing as well, so very sort of hands-on, it's not a matter of putting the two boys down in another room and letting them cry out, it's, yeah, it's, I've very aged. Very involved. <laughs> <laughs> I've aged a lot in the last year. 
Well, see, well, seeing as we were, we've been talking about, about baby boys and aging, let's rewind the clock a little bit okay. and go back to your childhood. Now, you were born in the UK, um, but yes. as I mentioned in your introduction, you were raised in the Kalahari Desert, which yeah. is in Southern Africa until the age of 11. Now, I have re- I've obviously done a bit of research for today and read, read ahead uh, and have some more insight than our listeners do into some of the things that you experienced <laughs> there. But given what those things are without giving too much away, mm. which we'll come to shortly, some might question the judgment of your parents. What can you tell me about your parents before we get into some of those well, stories? Well, my dad, my dad got into IT very quickly back in the sort of 60s, late 60s, 70s. He was originally a punch card carrier for General Foods in Banbury after being a carpenter there. So we helped build the factory and then got a job working there. That's where he met my mother. And this was back in the early 70s. And England, by the sounds of it, wasn't the greatest place to be. There was a there was a real sense of like, we need to go elsewhere. And so I think they, they came up with the options of either moving to Canada after I was born or moving to Africa after I was born. And um, my dad decided he didn't like the cold. So <laughs> he moved to, to, <laughs> we moved originally to South Africa, um, where he worked in a computer room at a mine. And, you know, I, I, I don't have any other childhood upbringing, but I can, you know, it, I would assume my childhood was fairly atypical. I think that's the right word. It was, it was an unusual upbringing. It was one surrounded by violence, not on behalf of my, my family, but the, the surroundings around it were, were really quite hard in the 70s in South Africa. They had the foresight to send me to the only multiracial school in the country, which was a convent. And so they had the special dis, like the special rules where they could get away with with doing mixed race things, and it was it was a strange way to grow up. It was a very strange way to grow up. And then we moved to Botswana, a job in um, in a place called Slivi Pikwi in in the centre of Botswana, which was was at that time it was the arse end of nowhere. And we just jumped in the car and we we drove through the desert and we broke down in the middle of the desert. My dad ended up hitching a lift to the nearest town, leaving my mother and and my brother and me in the car in the desert whilst, oh no, that's not true. Actually, I got that wrong. He put me, my brother and my mother in a stranger's car, sent us ahead and he stayed behind with the car until we could get help. um, So they were adventurous. They were reckless to, to an extent. You know, it's something I also inherited. Like I've never really stuck in one place too long. There's a real gypsy blood there a real adventurer um yeah so is there actually gypsy blood oh yeah 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 it's my partner's so, the same yeah and you're i mean the stories and and i, I want to get to to one of these now for people because they they are quite marvelous actually and and quite <laughs> quite terrifying for, for for the general general observer and one of them happened in 1979 and it was in a small mining town in Botswana. And I think you were about six years old at the time. Set the scene, you know, take us back to that moment. What was it that you discovered at age of six in this small mining town? Oh, so this was in, in Sleepy Pickwick. Um, and my parent, my mother, I remember this really vividly. It's a very strange thing to remember. She had gone to like a group to learn how to make samosas. <laughs> so she was in this group in the town hall yes, making samosas. Yeah, my brother and I were just playing, you know, playing outside, as you do. And I came round the the corner of the place to see my brother, um, surrounded by hyenas, 
And I'm just, just like, what the heck? Like, I would have been, like I said, six. But thankfully, I remembered something my dad had said, that hyenas are cowards. They are frightened of anything louder, uh, more aggressive, and bigger than them. So I quickly sort of picked up a stick and started shouting and screaming and sort of ran towards these hyenas, and they sort of all ran off. And uh, I think, in hindsight, it was a fairly formative experience of teaching you kind of that there are scary things out there. You've just got to use your wit and and knowledge and courage to to sort of vanquish them and that's 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 kind of what i learned there the um i quickly regretted saving my brother's life i joke but (laughs) 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 three years younger than me and the bane of the rest of my existence until i became adults and and still we don't see eye to eye but yeah no it's um it was at least you can always hold this you can always hold this over him yeah yes i do tease him about it you mentioned that Africa was was a very violent place to mm. grow up. You know, there were a couple of moments there that you've spoken about in the past where you experienced that violence. What can you tell us about about those situations? But yeah. also, as as someone who was so young, mm. how how did you process this, and how did it help to shape? As you just mentioned with the story there with the hyenas, how did it help to shape you as a as an adult? Yeah, I think it puts a lot of things into context. There's there's been situations where I've needed to draw on that sense of, of peace with stuff and put it into, into context of going, you know, compared to this, that's not quite so bad. You know, I went through a messy divorce and separated from my four children and all this kind of stuff happened. And it's just, you find a practice and you find a, a calmer place to go to because you've experienced so much more. I mean, the converse can also be true where it can compound there have been moments where things have happened and you just overreact uh, then quickly come back to that sense of, of self and perspective but yeah it's you know seeing your dad thrown over a bonnet of a car with a policeman with his gun to his head because he beat the horn and things like this and getting lost in the in, in the desert and, and being looking around you and you can see skulls of people and you go this is this is a very strange place very very strange place i wouldn't rush to go back certainly not with my children there is a love there of the place, but a respect there as well. Mm, can I imagine there would be a deep respect because you came very close to death a number of times as a yeah. child there. And there was a story, I believe, involving a black widow spider. Yeah, yeah, but it bit my hand. Uh, I nearly lost mm. my right arm. Um, there's photos of us traveling around Kenya with my arm all sort of bandaged up and it's still you know, that, that smell sense you'd never really forget. The smell sense of, of your own flesh kind of putrefying is um, it's a very odd one. It meant that I learned the difference between my left and my right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, there's something positive that, that came out of it. <laughs> what was it that brought, you know, after all of that time, what was it that brought your family back to the UK? I mean, why did, why did they leave? No school. There was no school in Botswana. Mm. It's certainly not in Sleepy Pickwick for this, the age that I was becoming. So there was that. There was decisions to be made of going, well, do we move back to the UK? Do we move back to South Africa? Do we send Rich to school in South Africa? Do we send Rich to boarding school in England? I'm thankful they chose the one they did. I don't think I would have survived boarding school very well. And I certainly wouldn't have survived national service in South Africa very well. Certainly not during that time when when apartheid rightfully came tumbling down. Um, You know, there there would have been an awkward situation to being in the military. So you can hear the babies yeah, so. have just woken up. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they're having great fun. Yeah. Well, look, speaking about children, I mean, you, you've mentioned, I think you had mentioned four children mm. 
and in your previous marriage and now you have the two baby boys yeah you know given your experiences as a child and what you experienced with your family how does your view or your comfort or relationship with familial risk-taking differ to that of your parents where's your line wow that's a really interesting one one i'm I'm gonna have to think about a bit i think that they're a different generation they were they were definitely a different generation my dad he lost his own father at 10 so he he really struggled to relate to people to say he wasn't a warm person is is would be wrong he was very warm internally but big wall like massive wall had a had a huge hole in in his comfort i believe that he filled with drinking and that that really put a massive strain on our relationship a huge huge strain certainly as a teenager where you have issues with your your parents anyway and certainly the father son or son father relationship can be quite awkward that was really tricky and you know there were certain experiences that that were also quite formative for me as an adult of dealing with a very an alcohol dependent father who was aggressive and learning to stand up in your own power and 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 face that down and seeing a shift in respect when you meet that head on and you stop cowering as a child so that was very different yeah that's you know that, that there's a there's a difference there i want my children to grow up in touch with emotions i want my children to grow up knowing that whatever they choose to be i'd be proud of them as long as they choose to be something they don't don't stumble through life if you can you know if you want to be an accountant okay <laughs> but if you want to be a creative i'll certainly stand behind that you know there was no support from from the fam well certainly not from my father with regards to being a creative he thought it was very unusual and not really something to be done conversely my brother studied economics and we both work the same kind of job now you know it's really odd i studied sculpture he studied economics we both work on the internet <laughs> There's a bit of irony in that. Yeah. I would I did want to talk to you about being a creative person and actually just before we move move off off this, one one thing I wasn't surprised to learn is that your one of your favorite books is Dr. Seuss's Oh the Places You'll Go. Yeah. I thought that was very, I, very, very fitting. It um it still gives me a lump in my throat when I read it. I read to my, my twins every night. Um, and that's one of the ones we go to. And there are passages in it that pull at the heartstrings it's one of my favorite books to buy people with children um for their children there are, yeah it's a very powerful book at a very important age to read something like that and to look at the light and the shadow of growing up and to and to sit with them and say you know i believe in you to a child is really really important i think yeah it's formative it's it's an important book mm. And also that ties back to what you were saying about your dad as well, you know, not necessarily having that support and that's something that mm-hmm. you want to bring forward into your relationship with your children. And I also learned when I was having having a look into your life for this conversation that something that you, uh, again, I'm projecting here a little bit, um, struggled with when you were growing up was dyslexia. Mm. And I wondered what role, and that's that's not, I mean, that's, not everybody has that, but that's also not too uncommon. And it seems Ooh. at least generically to me to be something that is more common amongst creative people. And that's a huge assumption. But I was curious about in your personal circumstance, what role dyslexia played in your development as a creative person? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's, that's a really big topic, something I'm really interested in and would like to, to, to focus more on 
in, in my life in that you know, I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until I was in my early 20s. You know, I really struggled at school and, and there was a real sense of of really disliking authority because I felt it didn't get me. It felt it, it failed me. Um, and there was there was, a, there was a battle there and it was an uncomfortable thing. You know, you mentioned in, in, in our pre-chat about the fact that I, I speak in a very kind of calm way. A, a lot of that is me working through my cognitive process with dyslexia. So I, I slow myself down on purpose and just to make sure I can find the right words at times. I think the reason why a lot of we, we discovered that a lot of creative people are also dyslexic is I think that the, the creativity is what comes from sort of your mind working in a different way than society is set out to. So you're constantly finding coping mechanisms to, to, to work through how to operate in, in the world. Um, in that, you know, quite often the language I'll use will be somewhat poetic and um, unusual, but that's because I can't remember the right word for it. <laughs> so my mind will go, how do I explain myself? Ah, that's how I get there. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how, how that worked for me. But it's also about trying to find your voice. You know, when the normal tools that we're taught and the way we're taught them don't serve you, you find your own voice and you find your own way of of getting things out. Because everybody needs to be heard. Everybody needs to feel that they, I say everybody, you must be careful with absolutes, but most people feel that they need to be heard and feel that they need to put themselves out there and be seen. Have you always seen yourself as a creative person? No, I, I think initially I just saw myself as me. That's because that's all I knew. I've, you know, I've always been relatively introverted, so it gives a lot of self-reflection. And then it was really funny. There's, there was a, a moment in the school library, of all things, where somebody, and I can't remember who it was, and turned to me and go, you're bohemian. I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked it up and I was like, yeah, I can live that. I'd be happy with that. And I think I've kind of lent into it. So... Yeah, I am by nature a creative person. I get uncomfortable in long periods of not being creative and not doing things. If I'm doing a job that's not particularly creative, I have to find those outlets elsewhere, whether it be cooking or painting or, or whatever. It's, or rearranging the cupboards. <laughs> Just whatever you can Something. Do. Yeah, fixing pottery or whatever. There has to be something in my day that I feel I've been positive and done something. Well, in terms of an outlet, I, I did have a good look through the artworks that you've created and that I could see online. And one of the ones that took my eye, which I, I mean, my reaction was, I think this is quite funny, but it also, there could be more to it. So I was curious to ask you about mm. was called Abusive Stones. Oh, and, okay. and just for the people listening, so they can get an idea of what this is. And I'll link to Rich's you know, artworks and the show notes, but it's literally, it's uh, two individual paintings, each of a stone saying something abusive. And I was really curious. What's the, what was the story mm. there? So yeah, that was a, that was a very, very difficult time in my life. Very hard. You know, my marriage had broken down. My wife and children had moved to England. I was still in New Zealand working and there was, there was a lot of things said, you know, and I was in the family home alone going through some really unpleasant stuff, you know, waking up dreaming that I was covered in blood, all this kind of weird psychological processing that was going on. And there were, there were things being said to me by all parties. And I was like, 
I've got to, I've got to own this. I've got to lean into this. I've got to create something from this before it destroys me. So there was that playing with a whole sticks and stones and they break my bones, but words will never hurt me type thing. I was like, I'm just going to paint stones and, and make them call me names. And because humor is a great balm, it's, it's a great way of dealing with things. And it's like, just laugh at it, laugh at it. Don't allow yourself to go down that a rabbit hole of, of believing this stuff and so I wrote a list of all the things and I was I would create a stone for it and then just cross it off the list like erase it it no longer existed it, it was a beautiful thing and no longer a piece of abuse um yeah that's that's a fairly raw thing to talk about but there you go <laughs> it is well that, that's brave that really is brave Rich and, and while I did say that I sort of saw uh, some humor in there and you did, did touch on it being you know, something that you tapped into to help move past that. I did wonder if there was uh, something sort of more substantial behind a mm. piece of art like that. So, you know, I really do appreciate you sharing no that story with no us today. Now, I want to come to some design topics and something maybe a little bit lighter as well. I feel while it's been it's been really um, deep, it's also possibly been a bit dark. I want to help lighten the <laughs> mood. And I get the sense, uh, Rich, that you enjoy design. Yeah the commercial aspect of, mm. of design, but it's more of a means to an end than an end of itself. Would you do product design if you didn't have to earn money? Would I do product design if I didn't have to? I think I would be very selective about what I designed. Um, I think I take certain projects that I'm not 100% comfortable about where they sit with me. I really do enjoy the challenges of product design, though. I, there are elements of it. It's that creative problem solving, and it's I, I actually probably enjoy a lot of the drier stuff more than most. You know, I love a really complicated issue. You know, one of my favorite pieces of work that I've, that I've done was, was a bill tracker for the House of Lords and the House of Commons. So when a thing goes into law and how it moves through, I had no idea how it happens. And I was working for Liberty Human Rights Organization, who, you know, I just loved the organization. I loved the people and, and everything. And it was a real contrast to previously working for people like Nestle and stuff like this, who I'm like, it's a bit, that doesn't quite sit that well with me, but we all have our cross to bear in, in feeding our family. But Getting a piece of logic that you just don't understand. And I think it really, that I actually spoke to one of my clients this morning about it. Being dyslexic and having a really poorly functioning short-term memory is a really helpful UX tool. And I really enjoy tapping into <laughs> that because it, if I can make it so that my, my, my kind of monkey mind, my sort of real short-term memory can understand something because of proximity and, and how we present something, then that's a really good indicator that it's going to be easy for the uninitiated to understand. Um, so I'm always kind of taking myself into that beginner's mind set with the, to use a, a Buddhist phrase, of kind of stepping back and going, if I know nothing about this, how would I understand this? So I find it very easy to slip in that because my mind can be very dumb sometimes. <laughs> and that's a useful thing. So to answer that question, would I still do it if I didn't have to? Probably not, actually. Probably not. I enjoy the freedom of being an artist. I enjoy the challenge of working in UX. 
But if I was to be 100% honest, it's so nice just to have free reign. And it's like, there's that, there's the wild man in me that really enjoys that. There's also a civilized part that enjoys the, the technical challenge and the, you know, I must be pretty good at it because I keep getting hired. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's the You're balance. You're on the, something there. Yeah. <laughs> Rich, I've heard you talk about in the past getting primal with design. Mm. What did you mean by that? I think, so alongside my sort of, fine art background which to me is about philosophy and ideas and getting involved in the tools i also study philosophy and psychology and sociology so i'm really interested in people i love people i love people's stories i love you know how they interact and and, and things like this and i think that there's a real love that i hold with really understanding where people meet businesses and meet technology and meet each other and Picking things out and making those interactions as fluid as possible, but also making them as unseen as possible. I think we, at Trade Me, we did this thing where we where we looked at trying to understand what the other person's spirit animal was. And I worked with a phenomenal designer, um, Cody, who came to the conclusion after the interview that I was mycelium. And I was like, okay. So there's that, that idea of getting into the weeds and really getting into the deep down hummus and the fabric of, 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 of a problem and, and trying to create solutions that solve that and and break down the rot and the assumptions that businesses have about the way they should work and the assumptions that businesses have about their users and the assumptions that people have about design and and how design should work and how people should design and these things and kind of just break that down and really try and understand the the viscosity and the, 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 the rawness underneath that i think that we 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 create too many layers of complexity in our lives that that stop us from actually seeing what the issues are. One of the tools that I understand that you use, a tool might be a bit of a, a specific word, it might might have actually be more broadly um, applicable than this, but is this lean approach to, to design. You know, what yeah. That could mean a number of things uh, to people, but when, when you talk about, when you think about lean and how lean can help you get primal and and get past some of those issues that organizations have with design what do you mean what do i mean with lean i think for me what i mean by lean is it could be jokingly referred to as doing as little as possible or lazy design or are you equate it with with some forms of taoism in that kind of just doing doing what's required doing what's necessary you're not doing more than you need to because i think quite often and I'm, you know, managing design teams and, and working in design for 25 years. There's a there's a safety in delving into into design programs really quickly. We tend to go, okay, here's a solution. Let me run away and spend two weeks sitting in front of a computer in Slack, in Slack, in Sketch, even. And there's the the word confusion coming in in Sketch. And and I'll I'll design something and I'll bring it back to you and it'll be fantastic. And it's like that's not how it works for me. I think that the best tool we've got is is this, is the pencil and paper and, and our mouths and our ears and our eyes and, and conversation and our interactions between each other. If I can solve a UX or a, a product design problem with a conversation and a piece of paper and passing the pencil around in five to ten minutes, I'll take that approach rather than if I can justify my wage by spending two weeks designing something. I don't think that's right. So that's what I mean by by lean. I think it's about doing just enough to solve the problem and no more. 
but but in doing that what you do is you allow yourself the freedom to really deep dive into what the actual problem is but you focus on the problem not coming up with this thing yeah this perfection and that's a hard thing for a lot of people i mean you've managed a lot of designers over the years and you know how do we help designers get over this fear of showing the work even if it if if it's at a very basic and early stage and involving other people in that design process it's a really interesting one you know there are there are a few words and sentences that make my skin crawl one of them being pixel perfect design it's like that's that that's great it has its place in product design i don't think it's as important i think what's important is being responsive and getting stuff to market and seeing how it's working and truly understanding the problem and putting your own prejudices and baggage aside so how do we we help young young people i think we do that by modeling that behavior by encouraging them by going yeah it's not the prettiest solution but by god it works you know and by encouraging conversation and with with your squad and bringing the squad on board one of the things that I, i did when i started introducing sort of lean design to to trade me when I was always the head of design for marketplace and we just merged with several other departments and it became a huge kind of I think there was over 150 people in the department it was like we're all designers all 150 people of you are designers like there's no way that I can do this so we had a conference and and I got kind of put in the position when I had to present to 150 people about what lean design is pure terror absolute terror I'm, I'm <laughs> I can imagine yeah i'm not a person that likes to be seen in that way very often i haven't historically been but that's that was a good reason to lean into it and and do it because i knew it it scared me and i think you should push yourself to do things that scare you which is a kind of answer there so what i did was i employed a mural artist a phenomenal mural artist to create three big pieces which was um better in in a in a billion tiny ways beautiful piece of script three things and I gave people permission to draw. I gave all 150 people this permission to draw something, to draw a listing, take a take a photograph from Trade Me and draw the product. And they were supported by the design team, like the design team were there to yeah, to support people in the drawing and make them feel comfortable about it. And make you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it just has to get this across. And then we once they practiced and practiced within this this hour and a half that I had, we got them drawing on these banners. And these banners were then split between three different offices sent to Christchurch sent to Auckland sent to Wellington and they were hung there and with the encouragement of like just keep drawing just you know and what that opened up for so many people was a reconnection you know so many people came and said I haven't drawn in 30 years since I was at school you know thank you for that and it's about it's about making it okay to to be less than perfect in, in, in in what you're doing it's being okay with with knowing that it's about getting the idea across and not about perfection we can polish up if we need to if we need to have pixel perfect pixel perfect designs we can get to that but let's not start there let's start there with actually solving problems and doing it in a very quick lean cost effective like involving way you know developers are designers too you know they often can give you so many insights that you would never understand if you dump into to designing for a sprint and then hand that over to a developer and i've seen so many issues happen whereby that doesn't work you know or the developer doesn't feel on board or the testers don't feel on board or the product owner doesn't feel on board it's like start with conversation get everybody on board and you'll get the best solutions that way 
Yeah, you have to design the designing. And yeah, coming yeah. coming back to your activity that you ran, you know, where everybody was contributing to to those banners that you created. Yeah. You know, business stakeholders or non-designers, doesn't have to be just business stakeholders, non-designers are often not that psyched or sometimes not that psyched about picking up a Sharpie and mucking in mm. with the design team. Why is that? It's a fear, I think. It's a fear of being exposed sometimes. Mm. You know, I use that in the presentation. I use that fear in the presentation. I use my own fear in the presentation. My my manager, a very at the time, was a very burlish, burly Scottish guy, very alpha male, and he kind of heckled me, going, "What if I'm scared of drawing?" And I was like, "Right, yeah. What if you are?" But I can tell you now, I'm utterly petrified stood here in front of every one of you guys. If I can stand up here and talk to all you people, then I'm sure you can pick up a pen and do a doodle. Oh, it's just like it's not precious. Don't we bring all that baggage to drawing and to creativity? It's like just just drop it. You don't need to carry it with you. It's it's okay. It's okay to be seen as as not a perfect drawer or perfect creative. It's you know it's about it's about making it okay to be to fail, which is which is great. Yeah, okay. and quite frankly, our a lot of our society is not really set up to. Uh, warm people up to that idea you know we spend a lot of time trying to be right or at least being seen to be right and I I get the sense actually I've just realized listening to what you were saying there that designers are often quite brave in Mm. the way in which they live their professional life because what designers create is always on show and it's always a very visible representation of their time energy and effort and previous experiences where a lot of other people that work in product organizations or in agencies, they don't necessarily have their work on show in the same way. They don't mm. necessarily have as much to lose. Yeah. So, and I think that's why mm. you get you get design egos that, that can be really hard to work with because a lot of that's the shadow of that, that needing to be protective of yourself. It's like if you create this persona, which is, which is ego, and then you're protecting yourself. You get a lot. I, I see a lot of designers that, just present the work and it's you know that presentation is very cold and that's seen as the thing to do with design i've always taken a slightly different approach and, and it's been noticed you know I, I tell a story about who i am and i give my work context because well that's a differentiator and i think that's that's the whole person like when you're working with a designer i want to work with the whole human being you know i want I want to welcome that whole human being into the design practice because it's important you know that collaboration in the process is important in design, particularly at the level of complexity that product calls for, isn't something that's done in a vacuum. You know, we've talked about just recently how we involve other people in that process and, and it can make the process more effective and better and richer than we can just as islands. Are there any areas though in design and products where designers shouldn't ask for input? I think sometimes when we're talking about aesthetics and the rules of aesthetics and the rules of good, in brackets, capital D design, I think that's something where we really need to own that stuff. It's like many designers, not myself, will spend many years studying design and being taught practices and being taught good practice about you know what is good design. 
I think that's something that designers should definitely own. Is like this is just good visual design, just good visual communication. I think that I think I need to sort of rush to the to the assertion that lean works best when you've got a great implemented design system in place. That's when it works best. When you know when there's predictability of how something is going to look because you've had professional designers do that aesthetic piece you've got that predictability that's when that's when it works best yeah so reflecting on your time managing design teams and interacting with other people and that aren't designers in the organization mm. you know people in the squads you know the product owners and the engineers and other people what are some of the behaviors or clues uh, that might be indicative of people being out of alignment and needing a little bit of yeah. help to get back on the same page. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting one. I think one of them is with certain people, you, you start to see slightly sloppy work in implementation. There's this stuff that gets implemented without conversation. So, you know, you, you can see it where somebody will just implement a button and they'll, they'll not really take care. It's just like, I've just done it. It's far enough. Or, or they'll be talking of designers as a group rather than my squad designer, Rich you know, like that disrespecting of the human and talking it just as a role. And I know I've done it a couple of times with regards to talking about developers, you know, but there's there's that breakdown in human respect there that sometimes happens or there's a breakdown in respecting the work, just pushing things out without checking in with the designer. And But but that being said, you know, designers are just as guilty of these problems as other squad members. Like we, we don't always put our arm around the other disciplines or see them as less important or just carrying out our work and it's like it's, it's not it's not about that it's it, it's the squad's work you are providing that function and it's your job to welcome people into to design because well it's important also not to dwell within the arrogance of the designer you don't know everything you don't know how to implement this stuff all the way you can only find out through through the combination of all efforts through everybody's skills and knowledge and even the most unexperienced person in a, in a squad can offer some real nuggets of information. I think you, you watch, you watch and you learn and you see how people are interacting and you start to look for toxic habits and you try and work through them. You know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of radical candor. Say what's important, what you need to say, but in a way that you, you really care about how that's going to be heard. I think that's really important for creating emotional safety within squads. And I think you need to invest the time in a squad to get to know each other and to respect each other and to trust each other, which is hard to do remotely, but it's important to do. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about creating emotional safety within the squad and within the design team. You, you know, you you were and and still are, I imagine, in some ways, an individual contributor on, on some projects and some products. But you've also mm. had many years' experience as a design leader, and you've been responsible for, mm. as I mentioned, the creative well-being of other designers. You know, how do you ensure? that the design team or people you were looking out for are feeling psychologically safe and are able to perform at that, yeah. at that high level that's called upon them to do. Yeah. So I, I learned the most about this through my time at trade me through, through working with people like Roxy and the rest of the design team who are now dispersed around New Zealand doing wonderful things. One of the most important things I've, I found useful is is taking time out to, to get to know the person. I'm a massive fan of one-on-ones. I'm a massive fan of walking one-on-ones, of getting people out of the office, getting them outside of that, that environment of like, this is not work. 
we're talking and I'm listening to you and I'm prompting you to kind of open up and explain what's going on for you. And, and it's not it's not a feigned interest. I'm genuinely interested in people. I genuinely sort of love and care for the people that I'm responsible for. You don't always see eye to eye with them, but you that's it's your job to move past that. So it's important to put your arm around people and, and give them your time and give them your 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 ears and, and give them your responses and, and in a non judgmental way. You know, I've we, we touched on the fact that I started using those skills outside of the work environment in just mentoring and coaching creative people, you know. And I've worked with some really fascinating people like leather workers and jewelers and people outside our UX world because they suffer from the same issues that we do of, you know, they don't believe they're good enough. They can't work out how to manage their days and stuff like this. They can't work out which direct, which which idea to, to follow next and how to take their business. There's real similarities. And I was like, I've been doing this for 20 years. How can I really help the people around me? You know, the people that are becoming friends and, and their friends. And so many of these people have just never been listened to. They've never had any somebody sit down and go, all right, I care about your business. Tell me about it. So what are you struggling with? Probably a good 50% of those initial conversations I've had with people have, have had people break down in tears, explaining what's going on for them in their business because and it, and it startled me to start with. I just couldn't understand it. it was I was going to say, were you prepared for that? You know, was that an outcome not that really. you were expecting from these conversations? No, no, not really. You know, I spoke to my partner about it and she sort of points out, she says, because so many people go through their lives without being heard, you know, especially women, especially creative people, they feel they're not heard. So for a middle-aged white man to sit down and just listen and just be there to help and support, it's a very rare thing. You know, there's no agenda. I wasn't getting paid for most of it. It's just, I found it rewarding. It got me out of the house in a very dry period um, and, and got me learning about businesses and, and people and the community around me. So yeah, I wasn't prepared for people to cry and it was startling, but it's I'm okay with that. It's part of my practice. It's okay. You know, you've spoken about both coaching and mentoring. And I, like, I understand that those are, are two different things. How are they different though in practice? Like how does your <laughs> your mentoring, I think it's a mentoring focus to your mentoring of other creative yeah. as opposed to what might have been a more coaching focus for your direct reports and, the, and, yeah. and say trade me. How do those two dynamics differ? That's, you know, that's something I'm always struggling with trying to work out. And, and it's something I keep going to look up. There's almost a difference between coaching and mentoring. And I come <laughs> away and then I forget what the difference is. <laughs> <laughs> it's that short-term memory. I was like, I can't remember what those words mean. Well, they, neither I think, can I, so. No, it's okay. Um, I think I slip between the two kind of organically. I don't have any mm. real agenda where I sit down, no, I'm only coaching you or now only mentoring you. I think, yeah, I, it's it's a very fluid thing for me. It slips between the two and the boundaries become, messy would be the wrong word, but become fluid and sort of nebulous. It's... And I think that's okay as long as you are there for that person and there to help that person. I think that within within a certain environment, you do have an agenda to some extent if you are managing them. You know, you have an agenda to make sure that they're performing to their best ability and you're trying to guide them to develop their career. Whereas with other people, I have no agenda as to what a poet does with their time other than 
you know, they've come for me to with for help with how to organize their day and how to explore ways to make money from their craft. And I'll help them pull that out. But there's no other agenda other than that. Other than just wanting to be a, just a good human, which is really important. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Well, mentoring and well, I, well, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, I think we uh, the more we can focus on being good humans, the better we'll all be. Yeah, coaching and mentoring is a very good human thing to do and to take seriously. I mean, some people, I imagine, don't relish that role because it comes with a lot of responsibility, or at least it it, mm. it does from my way of looking at it. You touched on before in your coaching or mentoring business with other creatives that they come with the same hang-ups that most mm. of us have about not being good enough. If we if we sort of take that thread mm. and th- if you reflect back on the designers that you've mentored, so the product designers, the UX designers, you know what are some of the hang-ups that designers mm. have that, and also why do they need to get past those and how can mm. they get past those? I think for me that the, you know, we hear talk about it, the, the, the strongest issue that I, uh, that I encounter with, with creatives and we all suffer from it is that of imposter syndrome. It's you know, when we initially first started having conversations about doing this, I suffered from terrible imposter syndrome. What you, you want to talk to me? I don't understand this, but for me, imposter syndrome is, is the shadow of integrity. It's the shadow of wanting to be your best self. And I think it's really important to frame it as that, like the imposter syndrome is not you. It's the shadow of, of everything that you hold dear and you're trying to push for and you're trying to improve. You know, so it's it's just that it's that self-judgment run rampant and unchecked. I think it's important to put your arm around that shadow and, and kind of just embrace that child within you that doesn't think it's ever good enough through whatever's gone on in your past or whatever. And also because of the pressure that we talked about before about being seen and we put our work out there, we're seen. So you know, if we're judging ourselves first, then it can help as a, as a shield of armour to, to the, the, the value of other people. That's the by far the strongest issue that comes up is that, you know, I'm not good enough. I find it especially prevalent with when I'm employing young women because of the social conditioning that, they, that happens. It's not, it's not just young women that have it but i think yeah it's the conversation i tend to have is like well of of course you're good enough otherwise you and i wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place i i wouldn't have brought you on if i didn't think you were good enough if i didn't think you were up for it you know and we've got such a quite often we have quite complex recruitment processes with lots of checks and balances so you're definitely good enough yeah, you are just you need to believe that you are. Yeah. Are you perfect? No, but none of us are. Mm. Is there room for development? Well, of course there is. You know, we, we develop until we die. Yeah, we can always improve. Yeah, it's about having those honest conversations with people and, and kind of, there's no point shouting at your your um, your shadows. It's, it's, they're there because you're doing something. You, they're there because you have a light. I think we were talking about Bob Baxley just briefly before we started recording, who is somebody that I spoke to a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And that what you're saying is reminding me of something that he told me about Steve Jobs. And I I think this is a widely publicized Steve Jobs-ism. I'm not going to quote it directly because I don't have it in front of me. But Steve used to say to people, 
the particularly young people, you know, look around you and look at everything that's in your environment, any product or thing that you can see and know that that thing was made by someone who's no more gifted than you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, um, that's really stuck yeah. with me the last couple of weeks. Yeah. That, there's, a, there's a film quote who's the film I can't remember the title of. And the quote is like, any man can do what another man can do. And it was, this was just this guy who was a high flyer. It's, uh, the name escapes me. They get lost in a mountain. And, you know, that's the principle that gets them through surviving the wild is like any man can do what another man can do. And I think it's really important to embrace that. You know, yeah, we, we, we are our biggest saboteurs always. It's, we will we will sabotage ourselves before any, and I don't know that's a very, that's a very privileged statement to make but i think that in in core of it you know where i am i'm my biggest saboteur like my own self-doubts and fears and i and i would look around me in a room of designers and go i'm sure that's the same thing there are different shades of it but yeah when you were younger you met a very famous designer by the name of ralph steadman yes and it'd be great if you could um, tell people <laughs> a little bit about who ralph is but yeah. i wondered now that we've been talking about there's some sort of imposter syndrome for creative people or designers generally just everybody to be fair i think it's widely recognized that most people carry this with mm. with them what sort of reaction or imposter syndrome if any did you have going on for yourself when when you met ralph yeah that was so i've been a fan of his for for a while you know he is the illustrator behind what you people understand to be hunter s thompson's image that scratchy free-flowing hyper creative illustrator he's a he's a character a phenomenal character a very much larger than life or it looks like larger than life character as you'd have to be to spend any time with hunter s thompson um <laughs> and that was just one of those situations i threw myself into i didn't have enough time to get scared it was the day after my 21st birthday i was terribly hungover, um, and he turned up at the university where i was studying in, in cheltenham it was planned but they needed somebody to film his workshop. I knew my way around a camera and my lecturer came up and said, look, we're supposed to be doing this. The person who was supposed to be filming it has dropped out. Can you do it? And I was like, who's it for? And it's Ralph Stemmon. I'm like, oh shit, okay. And I had a moment of fear going, am I okay to do this? What am I going to do? How's this going to work? You know, I'm hungover. I can't really think straight. And I was like, oh, he's dealt with worse, you know? <laughs> he's <laughs> he probably hungover too. <laughs> So I just threw myself into it and and got behind the camera and filmed it and learned it and had conversations. You know, the the conversation I had with him, we we were eating cucumber sandwiches, which is a ridiculous British thing. <laughs> Everybody tells you the Queen likes cucumber sandwiches and this and the other. We were eating cucumber sandwiches in the print facility of, of the university. And he said, um, oh, and he went back and he was like, I need to sign this because it's not a piece of work art until it's signed. And then he corrected himself again. No, it's not a piece of artwork until it's sold. And it's crass. And a lot of the sort of art purists will, will will bulk at that. But as a person working in the commercial sector, it was a really, really important thing to hear. You know, as a second year art student with all precious ideas about your work to know it doesn't mean anything until unless somebody's willing to, to give you money for it. Unfortunately, in this horrible capitalist society, that's how it works. You know, and I get I get so much validation when somebody buys a painting. You know, this is something that I've decided to do and somebody's bought it rather than 
somebody's come to me and said, I've got a problem, can you solve it? You know, it's like you, you're buying something from me that I've created out of my own impetus and, and desire to do so. And you're buying something unlike design that you were able to create entirely yeah. of your own constraints and conditions and that you imposed on yourself, yeah. which I can, I can imagine is incredibly rewarding. So going back to the, the question you asked me before, is like, would I do UX design if I didn't have to? That's why, the, you know, the, the buzz you get from creating your own thing. I've, you know, I long to create my own product. I'd love to create, like, I'd love to do what you've done with the space and go, I have a thing that I've created and people come to it. You know, that's, it's a phenomenal feeling, like the ego loves it. <laughs> and we are creatures of ego at some points, you know, we can't be 100% selfless as much as I've talked about <laughs> welcoming people in and not being selfish and egoic with things. Yeah, it was a good experience. It's reminding me of uh, an author that I quite like, David Baker. He writes a book called The Business of Expertise. He's also a coach of sorts to mm-hmm. creative entrepreneurs. And he's realized in his decades of doing that work that some people just don't have that inherent confidence in mm-hmm. themselves. And so they need to get that through what he calls marketplace validation. But that's basically people buying what it is that you've made. And that through that, that can actually build that confidence. And he's also seen others that seem to have too much confidence for their own good and the product doesn't necessarily support that. But for some reason, other people respond really positively to that confidence. Yeah, I see that a lot. I'm fascinated by that. In fact, there are people whose, whose work gets so much attention and I look at it and I'm like, I don't understand it. And I, can, I find myself going down a rabbit hole just exploring their work and going what is it what is it what is it they believe in why 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 is this and trying to understand it i rarely come away with a full understanding um not a conscious one anyway yeah i do i must admit i do respect somewhat distastefully that overconfidence yeah there's there's something in it there there is definitely something in that i think it's almost it's the work that goes on outside the work yeah I haven't really unpacked that myself fully, but yeah, there are some some people that you look at what they're up to and you just can't really work out why people are responding in the way that mm. they are, which which is probably means we're missing something, to be honest. Yeah, so I, there's something to learn there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of my favorite responses when people go, I don't understand this. I was like, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it. It means that there's a breakdown in your understanding of it or it's communicating its value to you. I, I don't know. <laughs> Rich, it feels like a good place to wrap up the conversation. And it's been a really thought-provoking conversation all, all the way through, actually. And it's got me thinking about uh, life in, in a larger mm. sense outside of product, to be honest, and the sort of realisation that life is short. Mm. And, you know, you're someone that has led from a very early age a life that's been fairly adventurous and you've been fairly open uh, today on the podcast talking about some of the challenges that life has presented you with. For the people that are listening to today's episode and have heard your stories and might be worried that they're not living up and into their potential, what do you want them to know? Yeah, be careful of that self-judgment. You know, we live in an age where where we are we are faced with people's artifice all the time. 
you know, you go on social media, you see people's beautiful lives on Instagram and you hear stories about people living interesting lives and, and this, that and the other. And there's a temptation to measure yourself up against that. And that's a dangerous game because what you're doing is you're measuring yourself up against that artifice. I'm very boring at times. Very, very boring. People's Instagram posts and their social media and their LinkedIn profiles, that's what they choose to put forward. There is stuff that's going on in your own head that that probably wouldn't happen in, in, in the person who's who you're looking at and going, what's this? It's like everybody is interesting. Everybody has their own things to talk about. So try not to be caught up in the artifice especially now especially in these weird times where we are more isolated and all you see is what people present a, a good thing is i'm much shorter than people think people meet me on the internet <laughs> and like, i have had many people i've known for years on the internet and quite overwhelmingly when i meet them people go oh you're not as tall as i thought you were and i think well, that's because you're not wearing shoes most of the time yeah this is true um I'm not now. Um, I think this is because people <laughs> see what what's what you present, and they feel like psychologically you are bigger, you're more interesting than than what you are. You're all a little bit dull sometimes. I think is what I would probably say to that. Well, that's a really important message, Rich. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. It's been wonderful to hear your stories and the insights that you've learned across your career. I really want to say thank you for so generously sharing those with everybody today. Thank you, Brendan. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I, I, I thrive on these kind of conversations. So thank you very much for, for allowing me the opportunity. You're most welcome, Rich. Cheers, Rich, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, mm. what's the best way for them to do that? I think would be to, to delve into my own website, which is uh, McCoy, mccoy.co.uk. And there everything else can be found out about. And send me an email. Send me a text, send me a message. Just let's have a chat. I'm, I'm, I, I, like I said, I, I love people. I love learning about them and their challenges and you know, helping them where I have the energy and the time. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we'll make sure we, we link to your website, Rich, and also to your art website and all your other wonderful things that you've put out there. And to everyone, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes, including, as I've just mentioned, where you can find Rich and his artwork and all about him. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave.